0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Back in interview 11, Joe Martin talked about how he was soon to step down from his leadership position at the Church of God General Conference. In this episode, you'll hear from Seth Ross, who has taken up the mantle and who casts his vision for the future. You'll learn about his background, his 20 years pastoring a church in Ohio, and how he came to be the executive director. What I found particularly refreshing about Ross's outlook is how non-sectarian he is. Rather than looking at the Church of God as a denomination to be protected from hostile secularists on the one hand and heresy-hunting evangelicals on the other, he sees his role as a cheerleader and a facilitator, not only for his network of churches, but also individuals far and wide who are studying the Bible and coming to discover God's identity, the kingdom gospel, conditional immortality, and believer's baptism. Whether you are a member of the Church of God or not, this interview should get you excited about the future of what God's doing in the world in our own time. Here now is interview 16, Church of God Vision with Seth Ross. Welcome, Seth, to Studio. Hey, it's good to be here. I feel honored to be asked. Let's start by getting a little bit of your background. What was it like for you growing up? I know your dad had been a pastor and your grandfather had been a pastor so what what is what is it like to be seth ross growing up (laughs) in the church of god
1: i think my dad worked actually really hard at making it as normal as it could be looking back we really had a pretty broad experience in terms of i know know a lot of people that grow up in small church denominations are pretty sheltered but i didn't ever feel like that dad traveled pretty extensively visited a lot of different churches. In fact, in terms of ministry, because both of my grandfathers had been pastors and dad was a pastor and his brother was a pastor. You predestined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he actually pushed me in another direction. So when I graduated from high school, uh, he pushed me to pursue other things if I wanted to do that. So I actually went to school right away to study biomedical engineering and uh, play some college football. And then it was that experience that I decided that ministry was more uh, in line with what I wanted to do with my life. So, and, and I think that was my dad's ultimate goal was that if I was going to choose it, it wasn't out of default, but it was out of you know calling or choice. One of the stories that I always tell, I would play Division Three football on a team where we had an All American linebacker on our team, and. It was an experience. I knew that I wanted to do it. If I didn't do it, I'd always wonder if I could have. And uh, we made the playoffs that particular year, 1989. So this is a long time ago. And uh, it was November. It was central Iowa. It was cold. So we're practicing for our first round of the playoffs. And uh, the coach, Hall of Fame coach, kicks this All-American linebacker off the field for lack of hustle. Problem was, it was the wrong player. So he comes back the next play, steam coming out of his ears, and who gets the ball but me? I was a tailback. So we sweep out to the left, and uh, he was way over pursuing. I knew he was going to miss. I planted my feet to cut inside, and I slipped on the frozen turf. He planted me six feet back, six feet under, broke my face mask, and I thought— maybe i should be a pastor <laughs> at that point so anyway it was during that year that i that i had made the decision to go to college and really pursue ministry, I remember going back to my high school and talking to my algebra teacher and telling her what I was doing in the shift that I was taking, and she looked at me and shook her head, and she said, oh, Seth, such wasted potential. Oh, <laughs> so that's how people sometimes from the outside view ministry, yeah. but uh, it's just been a really rewarding experience.
0: So you would say it has been rewarding. It has... Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, no, I don't feel like it's been wasted at all.
0: Awesome. Let's talk a bit about your time at North Hills. How long were you there for? I was there in the twenty. 20- 20 years. I went there in 96. Was that your first church or were you at a- First and only. Okay, so a one and done church yeah. experience. Yeah. And th- That's pretty rare.
1: Yeah, and it was interesting. When I started there, I didn't even know that I really wanted to pastor when I was in Bible college. I knew that ministry of some sort. So my dad, who was on staff at the time, said, that, I know this little church in Ohio that doesn't have a pastor. Would you be interested in going up there for a couple weeks in the summer? So I think my sophomore year, I went up and lived in somebody's basement, preached a couple times, and then came back in the next summer, did the same, came back. Uh, Through a series of years, we connected, and that was the first place I went. And I remember reading a ministry book where the guy in his ministry, I think it was actually a Rick Warren book, said that his prayer had been that the Lord would allow him to invest his entire life in a single group of people. And I began praying that, that that I'd be able to go along um, with these folks and that it would be my only church. And so at the end of 20 years, he'd honored that, so I, I, would, I wondered about, you know, making a shift, and so I haven't gone to another church. So that's still, you know, he's honored that, but in a different way than I had anticipated.
0: What are some memories from North Hills, like some successes you had there? Or describe that time from a ministry perspective a little bit. Like, what was it like when you when came I, and then when you, when you left?
1: Yeah, when I went there, I was 25. I was single, and uh, pretty much because I'd been there a couple summers, I had— relationships going in which is a little different than some pastors going to new churches but uh, i became everybody's grandson because i was single and everybody just took me under their wing and uh, it was a great time of growing for myself to be able to figure out what it meant to pastor and uh, actually the founding pastor was still in the church he he was farming at the time and uh, he really served as my greatest advocate when there's a previous leader in a church, they can either be your worst obstacle or they can be your best asset. And he turned into my best asset. And uh, so over the years, I grew through that, uh, made some mistakes along the way. Uh, here's something interesting in, in my preaching. Uh, in those first couple of years, as I was trying to find my own preaching voice, I was a little bit of everybody else. Right. You know, I, I was a little bit John Maxwell for a while, I was a little bit Rick Warren for a while, a little bit Bill Hybels, a little bit my dad. And, and eventually, you know, I found what I was comfortable with. And And you found Seth Ross. I found Seth Ross. Yeah. And Seth Ross happens to be shaped by different people. That was a good experience for me. And then over time, I really began to understand what it means to have kind of relational pocket change, Um, really developed a, a good relationship of trust with people. And so leadership became a very easy thing when you treat people well, but then you know, hold their feet to the fire when needed in an appropriate way with love. People respond well to that. And uh, so we, it, it was a hard breakup. I, when I, it's not really a breakup. When, when I transitioned after 20 years, I went through a grieving process and, and went through that with our church. And I felt like God was leading me to that direction, but I wasn't super happy about it.
0: What would you say looking back on that 20? Tw- because I mean, 20 years is a long time.
1: Right. Didn't feel like it. And then I look up and wow two decades.
0: Well, how would you how would you characterize, like, what you really feel was your legacy there as far as, like, what were the focuses that you had that, as a pastor, of course, you're covering a wide range of topics, a wide range of parts of the Bible, and there are different cultural issues like winds blowing one way and another throughout that 20-year period. Right. What would you say would be, like, the top two, three things that you would kind of, like, constantly emphasize during your i would continually come back to perspective I, i i
1: think giving people a biblical perspective on the the cultural chaos and and not necessarily being dogmatic about this is the position that you have to take but i would oftentimes allow people to explore things but lead them to a biblical position on it so you know where you have to end up to be consistent with scripture but It's more valuable when people get there through a process of discovery than if I say, "Ah, stop asking those questions. Can you give me an example? Yeah. I had an awesome class of young marrieds and people who are working in academic environments and professional environments where they're just an onslaught of issues regarding uh, homosexuality. Uh, You know, that would – it's currently – in the last four or five years, been a huge one on the radar, and then here recently, you know, immigration and how you deal with, you know, is it hate to disagree with someone philosophically, or is it just a difference in philosophical ideas? And and so we really work through a lot of that. And how, how can you, as a Christian, take a position against certain behavior, but at the same time do it in a way that's not hateful or judgmental, regardless of what someone says about you? And so uh, we really process through how, how do you navigate those waters at work, not capitulate to the cultural norms, and yet still maintain you know, doctrinal integrity right. and, and be countercultural. And, and that, I think, is, is going to be one of the bigger pressures on the church going forward, is how do you maintain a countercultural perspective, identity, value system without being completely castigated as a bigot, a homophobe, you know whatever and we may not be able to avoid that we just at some point may have to own that and to say you know that's not true of us regardless if you say that about us but i can't waver in what i feel scriptures teach
0: so what we're here saying is that you have a biblical understanding and then your your i guess style of ministry is to help people work that through into his practical applications Right. Is that what you mean by perspective or did you mean Yeah,
1: no 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 no, absolutely. To to be able to say when the world says this must be true, you know, through our school systems and through the media, you just assume everybody thinks a certain way or that this particular position on morality is somehow hateful, to say listen, let's let let's ask the bigger picture, is a position truly biblical necessarily hateful? And and just to ask people to step back from the immediate emotional, reactive type of news coverage that we see. It was crazy through the political season and how, you you know, I mean, we're so polarized, right? And so, you know, when I would preach.
0: Each time seems to get worse. Yeah, it's crazy. You remember the uh, W. Bush years? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pretty crazy there. Evangelicals were going nuts. Like, if you don't vote for this guy, uh, the Antichrist is going to come, and you know. Right. And, and then uh, the whole thing—the last, just the last few cycles—it seems like it's just gotten worse. Maybe I'm just more
1: people are just more off the rockers. I think they're more sensitive emotionally. You know, you can't say anything against me, or you hate me, and then I, And see, that's the thing too. You know, I I find political discussions interesting, and and so that was one thing in perspective. Like for our church, we were would really wrestle through the Christian implications of certain political positions without particularly taken aside. We would try to remove a left-right verbiage or a liberal progressive verbiage, Democrat-Republican, and just say, okay, this particular position. And we would look at how there was hypocrisy from both ends of the spectrum, and what, what would a reasoned Christian position be? Right. Can you be compassionate towards the foreigner without holding on to the moral depravity of that side of the aisle? Or can you... Push for fiscal conservatism without being hateful towards the poor. and You know, we would just wrestle through those. Like, and one of the phrases that I would often use is, "Jesus didn't come to take sides; he came to take over." And I just stole that from somebody else, but it resonated
0: with me. or what you were concerned with was helping people think through how their faith affected not just sin and righteousness, but but how they relate to the world around them. Right. How they process news information. Yeah,
1: how how do you live out your faith in a real-world situation? It's less about coming to church and really about engaging with your faith. And church is like the home base. We really talked a lot about, you know, this is like the refresher for what you're going out into rather than this is the event that you come to be entertained by. And, uh, you know, we really work to make it for lack of a better word, entertaining. In other words, we wanted to hold people's attention through our service, but we wanted to present information from a biblical information in a way that would cause people to go away asking questions to say, okay, I got to reason through how this works on Monday or Tuesday, or when I take my kids to martial arts, or when I go into the office and they have that staff meeting, or when I'm into the school and my friends on the playground say, and, and to really talk about, rather than just going to church, how do you live out your faith in a way that engages people, not necessarily to cloister ourselves away into small Christian conclaves where we don't have any interaction, but how would we, in a Jesus way, engage with a culture that doesn't agree with us in a way that potentially moves people closer towards Jesus?
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. So always like having an evangelistic aim in mind with how we engage the culture, with how we live out our faith authentically.
1: And, And to avoid being a caricature of evangelicalism or a Christian or a church to not be painted with a simple brush by other people, but for people to say, huh, you guys are a little bit different. And not that we're compromising in any way, but that we're just not a caricature of what people believe.
0: It seems like a lot of times, in my own observation, when it comes to politics, when it comes to policies, when it comes to moral issues, people oversimplify yeah and that i understand from a media perspective like you need the sound bite you need a clear like position like so uh, yeah to and you always have like the caricature the one-dimensional view of the other right and it's just not at all helpful to do that in right. real life but yet that is what is all around us and right. so i appreciate your we, we talked about that a lot actually
1: in in Sunday school class, um, that it just doesn't work well if somebody gets on a news interview and says, you know what, both of the positions that we are holding are really wrong, that let's have a long conversation about the nuanced you know, reality that sits in between, and it just doesn't. Right, do that work. wouldn't sell. Right, and so we go away from that into, like you said, simplistic answers, and it's just not helpful to anyone.
0: Uh, well, let's talk about your uh, decision to pursue a position at, the Church of God and the Atlanta Bible College. How did that first come on your radar? Was that something that you have been thinking of for the last twenty years, like, oh, maybe someday I will go down there and uh, take over from Dr. Joe Martin and uh, sit in the big chair, or was it like just out of nowhere for you? Like, what was the? It,
1: it was a process coming, but not something that I pursued. In fact, you know, for a while, last couple years, Joe and contemplating retirement would say from time to time, hey, Seth, would you ever think about, no, <laughs> you know, hey, would you consider, uh-uh. And and I just, I wasn't interested in that because I just didn't feel released from where I was. I felt like God had more for me to do in our church. And especially in light of my prayer to be invested in a single group of people for, you know, the duration, I just, it wasn't on my radar. I really liked Ministry where I was, I was feeling fulfilled there, feeling like I was making a difference, and um, and my my experience had been with my dad having served on staff even when I was in middle school and high school. I was exposed to. You know the conference structure and staff, and that had positives and negatives. You know, it was a lot of travel and a lot of exposure to a lot of people and a lot of relationships. But at the same time, I remember having, you know, these thoughts about how is it that every normal person who goes to work there becomes dysfunctional at some point? You know, I mean? it was like, <laughs> that was how in my younger years would say, I don't understand how that culture develops. And so I really didn't want to re-engage with it in any close way, but that probably wasn't an entirely accurate thing. So when Joe would ask me, would you consider it? It was a lot of no. Right. And um, and I would even talk to my dad, you know, um, about that possibility. He was always intrigued by it for me, but I, I wasn't convinced that that's where I needed to be. And then things began to change.
0: So what, what led to some changes developing?
1: Well, earlier this year in March, my dad died. Uh, unexpectedly. And while people have said, do you think you made this change because your dad died? And, and I don't think that that's the case. But it put into motion certain other things that led to the decision. Primarily, my dad, who started the theological conference with Anthony Buzzard, what, 20, 21 years ago, he was an attender every year, and my mom and dad had already paid for and purchased tickets and all that to attend. So after dad died, my mom felt like she still wanted to go and ask if I would attend with her. And I hadn't been in a number of years. And so I said, sure, you know, honor my dad and I'll go with you, mom, so you don't have to go alone. And so I went. And uh, the very first day uh, we were in first session and Dr. Joe came in, sat down next to me and said, hey, Seth, he said, let's have lunch and i just smiled and i said you haven't hired anybody yet have you and he said and so i said let's just go back to your office and let's talk and so we came back to his office and i just threw the litany of questions i really wasn't so much interested in pursuing it cuz i didn't even call my wife to say hey i'm going to have this talk with with joe i just said okay if we're going to have the conversation you know so i just peppered him with everything what are the pros the cons the pitfalls the, the the joys the challenges where's the direction of the organization going what's the health what's your job entail what do you get paid i mean just everything top to bottom and at the end of it you know he said well i'm not in a position to you know, do any of the hiring, but I would just recommend that if you had any inkling that you would call one of the, you know, national board members and just ask where they are in their process. He says, I don't know, but I know that they'd like to make a decision sometime in the next six months or a year. So I went away from that, not even sure I wanted to open that can of worms, right? Because you don't want to open a can of worms unless you're ready to eat worms. (laughs) So I came back and, and I talked to my wife and I said, Stacy, you'll never guess what Dr. Joe said. And so my wife, I hold her accountable on this. She says, you know, this keeps coming back to us. She said, not just Dr. Joe, but a number of different people at different times, uh, unconnected to each other, brought this back to us and said, would you ever consider this we think it would be a good thing? And she said, maybe we ought to pray about it. <laughs> and me and my infinite spiritual wisdom said, no, nah, we don't need to pray about this. <laughs> you know? And But I was like, you're right, you know, on further reflection. So we went and uh, wisdom and counsel. So we went over and talked to uh, Alan and Susan Kane. You know, they had been at different churches, and I was just asking the question, how do you never know when it's time to leave? Like, I really like where I am. I, I feel that we're, things are ramping up. Things are really going well. Why would I even entertain this? And so we just talked for like an hour, and uh, they said, we'll just pray that you have peace about whether or not to just call a board member and ask. Two days later, I get a text from a board member in South Carolina and said, do you have time to talk? And I just laughed when I got the text, and I showed my wife, and she's like, I guess you got to take the call, don't you? And so uh, Chris James from South Carolina called me, and uh, he's a pharmacist there, and talked. And again, I just felt like maybe God was pushing me in a direction that I didn't really want to go. He and I wrestled with this a lot. Um, You know, I I laugh because I really liked my church. I liked my office. I liked my house. I liked my mower. I liked my yard. I liked everything about my life. You know, I liked the school where our kids were. I liked our situation. I liked... I was just comfortable. And then that kind of bothered me because I really easily could have just coasted for the next 20 years and then retired. Yeah. And I just wondered if maybe that's what God was pushing me out of. And and interestingly enough, I guess this was in the spring. So back in the fall, uh, Stacy came come home and we talked about where she was professionally. Uh, she's a speech therapist and She'd been doing what she was doing about 10 years in her current employment situation. And so she said, you know, I I really like what I'm doing. But at the same time, I feel like maybe I want something different. And I don't know what that is. And so she said, I just feel like God's maybe preparing us for something. And we, we, we felt like we were in a time of preparing, but we didn't know for what. Because we were both really comfortable where we were. And so anyway, coming back to the situation where... Chris had called me and asked me to consider, and he said, I'm not even asking you to make a decision, but if you'd put together a, a resume so that if we do call you and ask for it, you can say no, or if at that time you feel like you want to send it in, you'll have it ready. And so we went through that process, and uh, and so that was interesting. I, I, and he said, can you send us a resume? Because I said, I don't have one. <laughs> he laughed, he said, what do you mean you don't have one? I'm like, well, I don't need another job. I mean, Why would I have a resume? I've never, in retrospect, I, we did a lot of praying through this time, what I couldn't escape was the arc of my life and the experiences as I looked back, how God had positioned me. I felt very much a kinship to what Esther, the word spoken to her, who knows, but you're placed in this position for such a time as this. And, uh, you know, I looked back, and, and my grandfather served in this position in 1968 to 80. And then my dad's brother, was chair of the National Board of Directors for a number of years. My dad served on, you know, staff at the Bible College. So, so when my grandfather, you know, there was, was name recognition and some form of relationship with a lot of people across the country of a certain demographic. And then because of my dad and his years at the Bible College, I knew a lot of people who'd come to school and gone on to pastor, and I had a lot of relationships through travel, a lot of exposure. And then for myself, I served as the National Youth Coordinator for several years and had worked on that Youth Advisory Council for more years than that. So I had relationships with a lot of people younger than me. So then when I look up from where I was, I had relationships with people, very much my senior people in the generation above me who are my dad's age, people who are my peers, and people who are below me. And I thought, dang it, God, <laughs> you know, I mean, as I look at this, I'm like, I, you know, I, I am uniquely situated to go into a situation where I'm connected in a lot of ways. Now, what I do with that is secondary, but it gives me at least a starting point to build on.
0: So what was it about the Theological Conference? Was it, was it just the fact that you were there and Joe was there and you could have that? Or was there something else? Because like, this is kind of like your dad's conference. Your dad, Kent yeah. Ross, always stood. I mean, he, to be honest, he almost preached the same sermon every year yeah. at that conference. And that was and that Jude thing. text. Uh, faith once the faith to the saints. once delivered to the saints that you got to hold to the truths of the scriptures that uh, maybe are not popular in evangelicalism, maybe are not popular certainly in a lot of mainstream Christianity or certainly not in Catholicism, and you got to hold to those no matter what and sp- and spread that faith once for all delivered to the saints. Was that at all playing in the background as as well, or
1: well, there, there's a certain legacy component to this. I don't really know that it was about living up to some, you know, trying to fill some shoes. Right. Yes. But I certainly had a great appreciation for our theological position in the larger evangelical world. And and I feel a real commitment to that, a, a real need to promote that, almost a, a protective... And not in a negative, protective like we got to defend the fort, but just that this is a, a baby worth nurturing. The phrase that keeps coming back to me. One of the things that would get under my skin sometimes is as I would go around the country, I would hear people at different times in frustration say, Well, the church of God is like, and then they would go off on some criticism or some different thing. And I would always think, well, wait a second, that's not my experience in the church of God that I've known. That might be yours. And so what became quickly apparent to me is that there is no one way to define the church of God. And and I have grown to appreciate the diversity within our network of churches, I don't even call it a a denomination, it's really just a network of churches. Because as I have gone around the country and visited church after church, state after state, region after region, there's only about four doctrines that I find show up in every single one of our churches. You know, there's a non-Trinitarian understanding of Christology, there's a, a commitment to conditional immortality, sleep of the dead, the kingdom on a renewed earth, and baptism of believers by immersion, right? Those four things. Beyond that, you know, there are churches that uh, believe non-personality of Satan, personality of Satan, not speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues, no women in ministry, women in ministry, pre-post-mid-trib, you know, there's all sorts of things. And so it's like beyond the kind of the four cornerstones, I just appreciate the diversity. And so the phrase that keeps coming back to me is, we're diverse people with an important voice. A diverse people with an important voice, and the important voice can't be lost. And so, if anything, uh, growing up, I've seen different churches kind of bicker with one another over these other things, even though they agree on the four things that most of evangelicalism kind of thumbs their nose at. Yeah. I'm like, can we not get over some of these other things? Because the voice that we have can't go away. It has such an important voice that even other people are coming to it, despite our own internal squabbles. So let's get over ourselves, really cooperate, and there's a whole plethora of people out there looking for what many of our people have taken for granted over the years. And that was another thing, I guess, that the Theological Conference has always highlighted for me, that there are people everywhere desperate for what we just take for granted. And I'm like, well, that's just crazy
0: yeah and the face stories uh, was that when Keegan Chandler shared? Yeah. yeah, I mean that was so incredible his story about uh, and I've, I've interviewed him on this uh, podcast before how he tried to prove the Trinity, and in the course of trying to prove that, he started questioning it right. and came to research his way out of it mm-hmm. so and, and there were there were a couple of other really awesome stories of, of people right. that are out there that are hungering, that are thirsting for these truths about who is God. The, the, the traditional doctrinal package offered by the Baptists or the Calvinists or the liberal denominations, it's not satisfying people. Right. Not if they're reading the Bible, mm-hmm. because the Bible is resisting those kinds of categories, just like weeds want to grow up through the slabs of concrete you know what i mean it's just like you know you can keep knocking them down but eventually if you read the bible enough it will destroy your systematic theology (laughs) if that systematic theology is is against
1: one of the things my wife she grew up in sort of a, a Southern Baptist circle and she has an experience much like what we talked at lunch the other day where she said when I began to understand the whole kingdom message she's like all of a sudden there's this richness in the scriptures that I just didn't see before when it was just about flying away somewhere and suddenly all of the prophecies have a much more realistic bent to them they're, they're more visceral they they are more valuable they're more exciting Yeah. So there's all of that. And, you know, the precious nature of these truths, like you said, you know, just the whole Bible comes alive. That's just such an important thing. And I, I think I probably didn't, because I just grew up with it, I didn't always appreciate the Value other people would find in it, right. and 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 because I grew up with it, I almost was I want to say a little ashamed of it, but you're a little embarrassed because you're different than your Catholic friends, your Baptist friends are like you believe what, and so it's kind of like I, yeah, you guys are crazy, but I don't want to really talk about it because I feel different, but now I'm like no 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 no. What I have makes sense. And, you know, I always tell people at our church as they come to this, I said, you need to be careful. Jesus will ruin your life. (laughs) You know, when you really understand a lot of what he teaches and the truth about him, it'll ruin your experience of going to other churches. And people that have come from other backgrounds now, they they go other places and they're like, yeah, it just misses something.
0: Yeah, you know, you remind me of the part where Jesus says, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, what are they going to do to you? You know, like... You're, and he says, a servant is not greater than his master. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Jesus is saying, you think you're better than me? You think you can <laughs> right. do Christianity better than I did Christianity? Look, there's no way that any of us can do it better than Jesus. He literally did it perfectly. Right. 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 <laughs> so, And what was his life like? It was beset with conflict, with yeah. criticism, with name-calling. Beelzebul is calling him a name right. of a demon. Right. And so... This is part of, if we're going to be authentic to Jesus, this is part of what we should expect. And we should almost question the other way. If everyone accepts us, everybody loves us, the culture says, oh, this church is so great. Well, uh, I'm not like contentious for the sake of being contentious, but I I would be a little concerned about that. Because Jesus says, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated me who uh, who came before you. So, uh, obviously, again, that's not a motivation to be flamboyant or controversial, but I think when it when it does happen, we need to be okay with it. And Jesus says, "Leap for joy in Luke 6, right? When they persecute you because that's what they did to the prophets.
1: I, I, and there's a, there's a subtlety in here. Um, having grown up in this whole network, I have seen people seek out that confrontation, not necessarily for the sake of bringing people on board, but for the sake of being right. Okay. And then and then they're almost kind of jerks about it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have people who just don't want any confrontation, and so they'll capitulate and not stand for anything. And, and I think what I've really come to love seeing is engaging people. It can be confrontational, but just to not necessarily challenge them with, I'm right and you're wrong, and make it a matter of who's smarter, but just say, you know what, I understand where you're coming from, but I think Jesus might— ruin that for you, if you look at this, and really exposing them. And, and you know, I've had people tell me, like, well, not a Christian, or, you know, I, I can't really fellowship with you anymore. Love playing basketball with you, but now I can't play basketball with you anymore. Um, that was a Fellowship of Christian Athletes guy, you know, at one point. And, and, and it's sad that people get there, but I do think a lot of people, when exposed to the Scripture, it just rips the lid off for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And it's such a—what I love is seeing people discover it. And, and just to walk with them. And, and even in our church, we've had people in Bible studies that totally disagreed with us because they came from other churches, but, you know, either their aunt or somebody invited them, and they liked us because we we're friendly. But then over time, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months, you know, even over a couple years, they've finally come to the point where, like, you know, when I first started here, I really disagreed with you guys because it wasn't what I was taught, but I can't disagree anymore. I look at this, and I'm like, it totally is right. Yeah. When they get there on their own, you know, it's over. Yeah you can't go back.
0: I just had a really awesome experience yesterday in the classroom here. Uh, I'm teaching a uh, evangelism class in the mornings and uh, there's a a young guy that came in from the local area here and he had no idea about the kingdom and I I got to be the one that shared it with him for the first time and I I could tell that was yesterday I could tell today it hasn't all sunk in in sure. yet. You know what I mean? It's there's still <laughs> he's still uh, he still got a lot of old terminology and ways of thinking that he has to work through, but like that there's is a such overnight. Yeah. yeah, that's such an exciting part of being a teacher or being a pastor or being involved here at the at the Bible College or in the denomination at large is is that this is happening. And it, it is it is facilitating. I mean, you look look around here, you've got Rufus Myers over here. Mm-hmm. Perfect example of a pastor who came and and saw the light, you know, and uh, what and is is passionate about the truth. or uh, any number of other folks that i that I've encountered, even even my own group story, how how we came to see through through a book from Anthony Buzzard that, one of our ministers read that, ended up talking to my dad and some other men, and then they studied it and they're like, "Wow, this really is in scripture." Right. Well, uh, how do you get an Anthony Buzzard writing books like that? Well, he needs he needs to work a job, he needs to survive. How did that happen? Well, the Church of God said, "Hey, work here. Yeah, do this." Yeah. I mean, if he's off t- teaching English somewhere, would that have ever happened? Right. Would I be? You know, I mean, it's yeah. crazy to think about. But like, I, I think the Church of God has a legacy that, that as far as I understand it, coming in from kind of an external perspective, is grounded in a passion for understanding God's book. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see, like, in the 1800s with these founders and, you know, Benjamin Wilson, Joseph Marshall, all these guys. And it's, It's just like, what does the book say? And they rediscover that Christ is coming back. Like, He's coming back? What yeah. the? What, how does that, how does that, you know, and then you get the kingdom, and then they discover Jesus' identity apart from the Father. You know, I mean, these things, it, it, it's it's something that should be exciting to us. And I totally get that growing up with it, you're just like, yeah, I know that. Yeah. I mean, that's all of our default, right. but exciting to hear how that has shifted for you over, yeah. the, over the years, being a kid and then going into the ministry and then, you know, taking this next step to more of instead of a captain of a ship the admiral of the fleet yeah, right yeah. where you're where you're coordinating multiple
1: i see myself really as is sort of an air traffic controller now like i don't need to be piloting every plane but if i can help people if we become a launchpad, I want to be a cheerleader for other groups that are not even necessarily official parts of the Church of God, you know, but if we can be advocates for what God is doing through other groups of people, we want to do that. You know, one of the things that we bring to the table is organizational longevity and stability. You know, we've been around a long time, and we haven't always, you know, stewarded it to the fullest extent, but that's one of the things that I want to begin doing now in this new position is to really use and leverage the stability that we've had to give other people a platform to launch whatever God is doing in them.
0: Yeah, I I suspect that there are a number of people in the audience listening to this that are what we we, we might call isolated folks. People that uh, through an internet search or through reading their Bible or through some other means, maybe a periodical or purchasing a book online, have come to see that The Father is the only true God. Have come to see that Jesus is coming back to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. Have come to see that the dead are asleep or uh, baptism and salvation and perseverance, these kinds of truths. And maybe they don't want to move. Maybe they do want to move. What would you say to these folks?
1: Well, one of the things that I'm excited that has already been afoot and we're trying to bring some structure around it is to find ways to create either regional events or or some type of fellowship for people who are, are isolated and maybe don't have the wherewithal to start a church or to make a move, but how do we, through technology or through you know, just the mobility that we have to go places, visit people, to really encourage and connect people, because there's there's nothing that can replace face-to-face conversation. And so, um, you know, we've got some people on our staff that are working with isolated people, that if they want to send us, you know, their information that we can regularly stay in contact with them, obviously they're in contact uh, through your podcast. And the more bridges that we can build, it's really not about necessarily getting more members, into a particular conference, but how do we get people connected to each other so that there's a certain amount of mutual edification, a certain amount of common encouragement so that these people who are finding the value in this understanding of Scripture but feel isolated from other people around them who may not be willing to make the jump, how do we get them connected in a way that they're relationally in a body? Of some type, I, and I don't know what that's going to look like. So whether we begin to do just even one of the colleges that I attended a long time ago, I get stuff from their alumni association that says, "Hey, on this particular weekend, we're hosting a open house at some hotel, something or other." You know, maybe just to do re- gatherings like that up in in Northeast or the Midwest or down in Florida, because we've got people all over that send us information and say, "Hey, we're looking for fellowship." In April, um, we're going out to one of our churches in. LA, and there's about 60 families in the LA area that are looking for fellowship. And maybe it's too far to drive every Sunday, an hour and a half across the valley. But we're going to have Anthony on April 30th at our Pomona church, invite everybody out there, and just talk about, you know, how do we. Um, maybe connect through region, you know, Bible studies throughout the city, uh, or whatever that's going to look like. I don't know. I'm just praying about what that's going to uh, transpire.
0: Would you say then that somebody should get in touch with Robin Todd or get in touch with the yeah. conference here? Yeah. Or absolutely. what's the best way to do that? If somebody's the best way
1: would be to um, if somebody
0: wants to act on it right now, what would they do? Right,
1: go to coggc.org. And this afternoon, we'll get a link up to uh, email information. It'll go straight to Robin Todd, who is coordinating all of our what we just call scattered brethren, uh, people, isolated members, you know, even if it's not members, just people looking to connect uh, because we want to capitalize on the people that have needs and we want to help them, uh, connect them, and bring value
0: to them. So, the first thing would be to get yourself sort of like registered in the sense that your information is known yeah, by robin know who's 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 connecting right. people with people and then this i think maybe another step might be uh that if if somebody does have a suggestion of yeah, give it to us yeah of like having a get together when to do it where to do it maybe they know other folks in their region but not maybe close enough to have a sunday meeting or something like yeah, that absolutely. that uh they could they could kind of generate some suggestions and almost like sort of like crowdsource this coalescing around these truths of of Scripture.
1: Yeah. And even if somebody has, like, some contacts or they know something, but they don't really want to organize anything, let us come alongside and provide some administrative muscle, and we'll we'll just make something happen for people so they can get together. You know, if we can facilitate that, we'd love to do it.
0: How many years old is the um, Church of God General Conference? The conference... Officially. uh,
1: Officially? Well, (laughs) you know, the beginnings were 1881 Philadelphia, and then it's had several iterations. But I mean, those were some of the original gatherings of people. And what's so interesting is they were gathering to create a conference. And one of the beliefs many of them had is they didn't think conferences were a thing to be had. So it was this real conundrum that they had to wrestle through.
0: For like the general conference meeting, what year are they on for that?
1: Oh, gosh, we just had the 75th a couple years ago.
0: So, so you're approaching current, a century yes. of organizational I mean, stability. Churches,
1: yes. yes, absolutely. So we're coming up on... So that's,
0: that's significant.
1: right? What I really appreciate about this is that it transcends any particular personality or individual.
0: Right. It's yeah. not the cult of personality. Right. It's not a charismatic leader at the center of it. This is a group of people that... Have the same core beliefs, and that have worked together over decades and decades and decades, and uh, you know, starting out in the in the 19th century, lasting throughout the 20th century. Now we're in the 21st century. So this is really the third century of right. this this group, if you really look at it like that, mm-hmm. uh, working together, which is pretty cool because my group is so young.
1: Yeah, it's not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in comparison, and 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 it's pretty amazing that we continue to, to thrive in this because essentially, at its core, you have people who are willing to go countercultural and disagree with everybody around them and then come into voluntary fellowship where they're going to get along with people when they're the very personalities that are willing to not get along with people. Right. You know, So the fact that we've been able to work together for so long uh, is pretty amazing in itself. If.
0: Say, for example, biblical Unitarianism is true. Uh, That the Father of Jesus is the only true God, and that Jesus is His Son, Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus is not God uh, on the level of the Father and all that uh, with the Spirit. So let's let's just take that one truth by itself for a moment. If that's who God is, then of course, if there are people open to pursuing truth all around the world, we should expect that God would work with them independent of any particular group, right. any particular organization, to lead them to these truths. Right. And since I've been part of this movement, which is literally what I think of it as, no. uh, from, a more, uh, from a large-scale perspective here, right. uh, I have seen that. I've seen that in little individual cases Every year I go to the theological conference, right. and I see it sometimes in these big ways where Dan Gill, this random pastor from a one this Pentecostal background in Tennessee, his whole group changes their, their beliefs and they get on board. I see it with this Asian group, the Christian Disciples Church, 3,000 of them all around the world. Right. In all these Asian countries where the Church of God, where Living Hope, where other groups that I'm aware of don't have any contacts, well, guess what? God's working over there, too.
1: <laughs> it's like God knows what he's doing.
0: <laughs> God's raising up. Yeah. God raised up an Eric Chang. He wrote a book about the only true God. And now you've got all these Asian, all these Chinese-speaking believers that are are now part of this large-scale movement right. of what God's doing in the world. Yeah. So I that's think it's really just it tremendously yeah. exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, and I look at all that's happening in Africa uh, and through the, the, the explosion of churches over there. There. Yeah.
0: I mean, we talked about Africa. I mean,
1: how many churches are in Africa? There's like 300 churches. Right. So
0: oh, you right. have 300 more churches that are part of this organization in Africa.
1: Right. It's, it's just amazing. And I thought about that even when they were asking me to head this thing up, take the command of the ship or whatever it is. I was telling my wife, you know, to be able to coordinate a network of churches is cool, but a, over a country... But then also Korea and South America, and potentially build some relationships in Asia that with people that are not necessarily our people. They're God's people, right. and we're simply you know trying to coordinate and launch and support and advocate.
0: I, I, what I really appreciate about your uh, the the way you're describing things, your perspective here, is that you're not trying to build your own little empire. Oh yeah. There are probably a lot of Christian groups out there that are trying to build their own little empire and to have absolute control over everything. And what, the way you're looking at it here is you want to partner with God to do whatever you can to connect people with God and those people with each other as well. Right. So that what? They can survive because we need fellowship. Right. And right. so that they can reach out as well and spread the message to others. Mm-hmm. Because I think... Although this is 500 years now, this year, from the beginning of the Reformation, so much is left undone in Christianity today. Oh, yeah. It's still a mess. And getting a a good grasp on who... Jesus is, on what the hope is, on a better understanding of salvation. These sorts of things, they should be common knowledge among Christianity today.
1: One of the things that's difficult for me to to really grip my hands around is that theology of Scripture is fairly straightforward and intended to be simple and accessible to the common guy, you know, but somehow through the centuries and through the councils, it has become such a convoluted mess of esoteric understanding that most people don't even feel that they have access to theology, and so theology becomes this thing that's relegated to the elite few who go to college, and Jesus, he was common folk guy, you know, basically, look, our Heavenly Father is a father to us all, the world's messed up, I'm going to die to connect you to him, and I'm going to come back, and everything's going to be good, Right. <laughs> Like, how simple is that? Right. You know, the, the, the story begins with God living on earth with man, and it ends with God living on earth with man. Everything in, betu- in between is is how we get there.
0: Right. How do we get away from that and how do we get back to that? Right. Well, let's uh, just, we've got to wind things down here a little bit, but what's let's talk about the future a little bit. Where do you see the Church of God? Where do you see the Atlanta Bible College? What, what sort of vision do you have looking forward?
1: Going forward from here, what I or one of the phrases that I've kind of come back to over and over is that I believe the Church of God can become an ever expanding network of spiritually vibrant and healthy churches, driven by the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the Kingdom of God. You know, and and that simple statement has a lot in it. But that not only do we need to be planting other works as we find people coming to this a clear understanding of Scripture. So there's planting of churches, but also there's a continued work at creating healthy and spiritually vibrant churches, because just knowing the right things isn't enough. That it has to be, you know, bodies of people who are really living out their faith in a way that, again, I, you know, Hebrews talks about the milk of the word, and it talks about some of these foundational doctrines. So these foundational things that I've had as foundations because I grew up in this movement, that's just based on which you build. And, and then you get into the hard work of forgiveness and conflict and, you know, generosity and all of these other things that, you know, some people like to say, well, that's the fluff. Well, that's really the hard stuff that Christians don't get very well. Understanding that Jesus is God's son is pretty simple if you don't have all the other voices in your head. But anyway, um, like, that, like, I digress there. It, well, it's like eating
0: just the meat. And it's like, the meat's great, it's going to give you—unless you're a vegetarian—but the meat's great, it's going to give you protein, it's going to help you build muscle, but, like, you also need to have a balanced diet. You you also need to bring in the vegetables. Because,
1: essentially, we need churches that not only have a proper understanding of Scripture, but then that they need to be working out their salvation in terms of how do we become a functioning body of Christ? How do we represent Christ in the world based on a proper understanding
0: of who He is? Right. And uh, so, I I think that's a good— balance yeah. that we want to have because Jesus isn't a systematic theologian. Right. You, you, read, you read him, he, he, he speaks in parables, he has ethical teachings. There is doctrine there. There's right. no question about it, but it's lived. Yes. And he's a rabbi with, with students, with disciples who are learning his way. Right. It's not just his beliefs, but his way of interacting with people. And I think that's good because I have seen it the other way, yeah. where somebody gets all the, the beliefs right, but they're a jerk.
1: Yeah. They're just a terrible Christian. You know, I mean, yes. now the good thing is even, you know, jerks can be saved too. But it's one of those things where, you know, I want to be careful how I say this. The, the end game isn't a proper understanding of Scripture. That's the beginning game. You get a proper understanding so that you can become a Christ follower, a disciple of, a, an ambassador for. You know, that's all built on the first beginning stages of a proper understanding. You know, we, we can get askew I think, if we make that the end goal. That you know, once you achieve a proper understanding, then you know, you're done. But that's really just the beginning part. Yeah,
0: yeah. And you know, life is complicated, and we we need to have people to lean on to help us get through hard times. I go through hard times. Everybody goes through hard times. We go through good times, right. and when that happens, uh, we want somebody to rejoice with us. You know, and uh, so I think this is uh, this is this is a really helpful way of looking at it.
1: And that's one of the reasons that I'm I'm anxious and I'm excited about connecting with people who are not even traditionally part of the church of God because there's such a larger community of people who share these common understandings like parties are always more fun with more people right yeah. so let's just bring a lot of people to the party and uh, it'll be a good yeah. time
0: well actually that's a that's the vision of the kingdom isn't it Isaiah yeah. 25 there's uh there's this big banquet with the rich meats and the fine wines, and you've got uh, everybody rejoicing, this is our God, He saved us, and He's He's destroyed death, and He's wiped away our tears. I mean, that's the vision that Jesus, or Jesus talks about eating at the at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, there's right, this right, right. idea of, of the kingdom as a party. Yeah. And you really get that sense in the Gospel of Luke, but I think that's uh, something we can do in anticipation of what's coming. We can get together with each other and help each other through life, you know, as as the people of God. You know, I think that can be itself a testimony to um, what God's doing. So, well, thanks so much for taking some time out.
1: Uh, I appreciate being asked. If any of your listeners just want to connect, well, they can certainly email me directly at sethross at gmail.com and uh, you know, I'd take all that right here at my desk and uh, be happy to get them in contact with people in their area, give them access to other resources, and uh, become friends.
0: If you were to recommend to somebody, let's say somebody lives in uh, Wyoming. Right. Are there people in Wyoming?
1: Well, we have people in Wyoming, even though there's not a lot of people. Oh, there are from. Okay, but you
0: know, um, it, it, Let, let's say somebody yeah. lives out in uh, a state where they're they're just they're not aware of a lot of other, right. and uh, they wanted to come to one event. Uh, what would you recommend them to come to? Would you say Christian Workers Seminar, Theological Conference, General Conference? Would it be some other event? Like what? What would you have them travel to where they could meet other believers?
1: I think at some point. Christian Workers Seminar, which happens in the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forge area, is a great chance to connect with other people who are like-minded if you're looking for fellowship as a primary goal. That's in Tennessee, right? And if someone were interested more in the theological exercise that comes with fellowship, you know, people to connect with at a, at a more intellectual level, then the theological conference in May would be a place to get connected. And I would... I would, near Atlanta yeah that's in the Atlanta area, and I would encourage people not to just stay with one, but that they because because we have different groups of people attend both of those events, yeah, and so I think there's a lot of things and we would be interested in creating regional events too. there are state conferences that happen in the spring and the fall around the country
0: all right well, I'll put links to yeah. both of those events, Christian Workers seminar uh, for folks that are. More interested in the fellowship aspect than the nerdy theological <laughs> aspect, and then the, the Theo Conference for my fellow nerds out there.
1: And I will personally be at both of those events, and so if anybody shows up, you know, seek me out. I'd love to love to meet you.
0: All right, cool. Well, thanks for taking the time today. I just wanted to let you know about a few items that are in the show notes for this episode. First of all, Christian Worker Seminar, which Seth mentioned, is coming up very soon, April 23rd to the 28th in Pigeon Ford, Tennessee. You can get more information about that at coggc.org. Also, registration is open for the Theological Conference in Hampton, Georgia, which is for May 18th to the 21st, an event I plan on attending and speaking at. My title is going to be a Restorationist Manifesto. So if that intrigues you, (laughs) or not, please come on down to The Theological Conference, and you can get more information about that at theologicalconference.org. Also, if you want to get in contact with Robin Todd, he has an excellent website that partners with The Church of God to connect people to people so that they can get together, and they've even had a church plant or two so far, and that is scatteredbrethren.org and just get yourself listed there, and Robin will be able to tell you if he knows other people in your area that are interested in getting contacted about fellowship. For more information about Eric Chang and the Christian Disciples Church, you can head on over to christiandiscipleschurch.org and find out more about them, especially if you're listening to this from an Asian country. I know they're very active in certain Asian countries, Australia, and also Canada, in Toronto and Montreal. So check that out. And if you haven't yet listened to it, I recommend you check out Interview 11 with Joe Martin, looking back on his service at the Atlanta Bible College. I hope this interview was helpful. Stay tuned next week for an interview with Matt Elton, where we talk about Romans chapter 9 and the question that Brian Allen had brought up a while back about whether or not a Torah observant Jew could be saved apart from Christ. So stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for listening. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.